You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition. Because stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Malaria has been on the decline for the last 15 years, but recently, those unprecedented gains have slowed. Our guest, Dr. Philip Welkoff, is a leader in disease transmission and his leading strategy is a director for malaria at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Guest host Robert Newman, a senior associate at the Global Health Policy Center at CSIS, talks to Philip about how to address this plateauing of progress. Philip, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So the world, the WHO World Malaria Report 2018 was launched, and as you know, after 15 years of steady declines, the estimated number of malaria cases and deaths has plateaued over the last couple of years. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about this sobering news and, and your thinking about the reasons for this uh, plateauing of progress. This is the 2018 World Malaria Report builds off of kind of early indications in the 2017 World Malaria Report that we were starting to see this plateauing of progress. The, the first thing, though, to point out is that this 15 years of progress still exists. Every year, thanks to the work of the international community, donors, organizations like the Global Fund Presence Malaria Initiative, national malaria control programs around the world, and implementers, all those activities together end up saving about half a million lives a year. We look at how many deaths per year there would be uh, now compared to the counterfactual of not doing these activities. All the things that are being done right now save half a million lives every year. And given what's being spent on that, it's actually a really good deal. So that's the first important thing there. The second piece, though, is that what got us to this point is not what's necessarily what's going to take us further beyond this. First of all, um, deaths are basically at an all-time low because of these activities. The issue is that further progress has stagnated, and that's where we have a real opportunity. So the reasons for why are a couple things. The first one is uh, funding has been relatively flat for the past six or seven years. Now, if we think about uh, a lot of the work and a lot of that was done was to give out bed nets. Think about the first set of bed nets given out, through the first half million dollars, half billion dollars that is used to give out new tools, long-lasting insecticide-treated nets, rolling out long-lasting insecticide-treated nets, new forms of indoor residual spraying, switching the drugs to artemisinin combination therapy, and rolling out rapid diagnostic tests. So it turns out that the uh, vector control pieces were responsible for over three quarters of that uh, impact in terms of lives saved, based on a uh, a nature article from Samir Bhatt and colleagues uh, and his colleagues a few years ago. Now, so the 
first half billion dollars that goes to give out these this, these new long-lasting insecticide-treated nets gives everybody who got one of those a new net for the first time. And so then the next year, you give out more money. And more, with more money, you give out more nets. And those people also get it for the first time. The challenge, though, is that nets wear out. And every two to three years, you need to give someone a new net to both replace ones that have torn and also the insecticide eventually wears out. And so after a few years, say in year four, you're now giving out, say, over a billion dollars worth of nets. Um, the issue is half a billion dollars being given to replace the nets that people got three years before. And so it takes time because funding was increasing over until about 2010. And then when we, when we see that, coverage kept going up. And fortunately, as volumes went up, the cost per net went down. And so even with a given amount of money, we could give out per net. But eventually that's saturated. And now most of the money that's being spent is being spent to maintain the current level of impact. So that's a subtle point. There's still a huge amount of impact every year, but every few years we have to replace everyone's bed nets. And it's now taking the better part of the international funding to keep coverage at the level it is every single year. We, we shouldn't say that the current work is doing nothing because the current work is saving a lot of lives every single year. It's just now we have to, it, it, it's like an Alice in Wonderland, you have to run harder and harder to stay in place um, at, the, at this level of impact. So what can we do to go beyond that? The second issue is that we're now starting to see um, insecticide resistance uh, in quite a, quite a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, these nets that were rolled out were pyrethroid-based, and we're now seeing uh, insecticide resistance to the pyrethroids in most parts of sub-Saharan Africa, which may have, start, to have a, uh, start to have a negative impact. We'll understand more about what impact this may be having over time, but it's going to be important also to eventually be switching to the new forms of bed nets uh, that use new active ingredients that can get around this insecticide resistance. So in, in terms of the running faster to stay where we are just in terms of funding, we're also having to run faster to stay where we are in terms of evolution of uh, resistance. So these are two things that come together. This is a real challenge. It's a, it's, a, it's a moment where we have to come together and take stock as a global community to say, why is this happening? What characterizes the current challenges? And what can we do to go further? In addition to the uh, funding treadmill and resistance is that there's a lot of countries that have driven down burden to very low levels. Uh, these new tools that have actually gone out in very strong systems, good health systems that are making good availability and use of the new drugs and diagnostics. The logistics are giving out the nets where they're needed. And we actually see burden go to quite low levels in a number of these countries. At the same time, that residual global uh, burden of disease that, and the 430,000 or so deaths every year in the World Malaria Reports um, are now becoming concentrated in a smaller number of countries. You can see that Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Burkina Faso alone uh, are responsible for, quite a, for about 40% of the deaths every single year due to malaria. So already, not only are we having to work hard to keep going, are we battling resistance, but we're, the, the further progress that needs to be made is also in places that where the burden started much higher, transmission of intensity is higher, where health systems may be weaker, uh, where logistics are tougher to do, and a variety of other factors like that. So what got us to this point is not necessarily what's going to get us uh, further, um, but 
what we have come a long way and we have a real opportunity to build on that and be happy to talk about the opportunities to do more and to build on the current activities. Thank you very much. I think the issue around data, you know, is a critical one. And, you know, of course, it's not just the systems to collect those data, but building the capacity amongst the people who actually need to look at those data, analyze them. As you're well aware, that capacity is often limited, in, especially in the periphery, which, as you point out, is where the, the fight is really taking place. So I'm curious about your thoughts about how we actually build that capacity. How do we support ministries of health and, and, and provincial and district-level health authorities uh, to have the capacity to, to look at those data and act on them rather than just pass them up the chain. And really, that's part of a larger question of, of how we invest not only in the tools for tomorrow, but in the people who are going to be responsible for delivering them. This is a really important question. If we look at uh, develop a updated uh, Gates Foundation malaria strategy, I think making sure that data are used as effectively as possible by people in the malaria control programs in the affected countries is, is a core element of the, of the updated strategy. Because as you say, it's not just enough to have better data. It needs to be used. It needs to be used to drive decision-making and needs to be used to drive decision-making at a local level. If the problem is subnational, then the, the use of data needs to be subnational too. We will be investing more in terms of, one, improving quality of data, but then also, two, building capacity to use those data in country to increase impact of national malaria control programs in affected countries. What are some of the things that, that can be done? This is not a new area. There are a lot of people who have been doing phenomenal work um, in terms of improving capacity to use data, demonstrating the power of data, um, and uh, demonstrating the power of data to actually drive decision-making over the past over the past few years, there's a really exciting effort called uh, Visualize No Malaria, and uh, Visualize No Malaria works with uh, district uh, malaria control officers uh, in a number of countries. Zambia, uh, Southern Zambia is one of their big uh, successes so far, and uh, it provides an opportunity for malaria control program uh, individuals at the district level, at the provincial level, at the national level, but all the way down to a local level can look at their data and actually understand what are the trend lines, what's happening, where's malaria going up, where's it going down, where is it being concentrated, what characterizes the problem. And by coming up with a clear way in which people can actually see their data and, and make sense of it, um, it actually starts to in, encourage a culture of relying on and using data within the program. Now that, uh, I think, is very well articulated, and I think it's a perfect... Uh, moment to ask you to delve in a little deeper into the new malaria strategy that you're developing with your team for the Gates Foundation. So you touched on the importance of data and the importance on, uh, of building capacity amongst those who need to you know, analyze and use those data. What are some of the other new directions that, uh, that you're headed in, in this new strategy? I think a first one, it just is what are the things that stay the same and what are the things that are different? I think in terms of things that stay the same, our, our, our commitment to uh, malaria eradication remains. We want to push malaria down and get to a world that's free of malaria. Um, there's a lot of reasons why this is important. Um, if we, we, we look at the uh, baseline transmission intensity that malaria can get to, and we look at how fast it can explode to what numbers, 
we can look and compare and see how many people died of malaria uh, in the context of the outbreak in West Africa a few years ago. And when health systems start breaking down, when logistics break down, malaria comes back very quickly. And without a strong health system to provide access to treatment, a death rate goes up very fast as well. So the world is, is going to be have ups and downs. There's going to be uh, financial crises. There's going to be areas with conflict. Uh, we don't want those areas to have to be at risk of having a giant spike in, in malaria deaths. Uh, whenever things go poorly, whenever funding decreases, whenever there's uh, unrest, whenever there's a breakdown in uh, the delivery of civil services. So in terms of a long-term objective that we want to get to, getting to a world free of malaria is remains the goal. But there's a question in terms of how to get there and what are the ways in which we do that. I think what we can, what we can say is that we want to be pursuing a pathway towards eradication that will minimizes that will minimize the death between today and the end of, of malaria. And so what that has a couple implications. The first one is more aggressively driving down deaths in the near term. Um, and there are things that we can do to, to do that. The second one is uh, we look and say the, the, the countries that actually and the subnational areas that actually have the highest burden right now and some of the biggest challenges in terms of getting the tools that we have available today to the families and the households and the children that need them um, are also going to be those areas that are the toughest to actually finish the, the work in terms of getting rid of malaria altogether. And so what we've learned a lot from polio, that uh, the, the, the last countries and the last uh, subnational areas are really difficult and take a lot of time and effort and money. And we want to get ahead of that. If, if we need certain systems in terms of uh, measuring malaria, in terms of gathering those data, in terms of using those data at a, at a country level, at a subnational level, and the systems to deliver tools where they need to be, we want to get ahead of that. And we don't want to get into the 2030s and then all of a sudden take on the challenge in countries. And so if we actually care about getting rid of malaria altogether, we have to go to the tough places. Going to the tough places is also where we can actually save the most lives in the near term. So I think what you see in terms of at a high level refocusing of a strategy is saying, yes, while we pursue eradication, we will actually be working with partners and engaging at, in the really difficult places. This will drive down deaths in the near term. This will build the systems that they need both to actually lower burden now and actually be able to end malaria down the road. Um, we don't want to just get rid of malaria in the places where we can now and leave the tough places for later. That, that keeps burden concentrated and also sets us up for a long uh, end game getting rid of malaria down the road. Uh, we can do better, and, and that also has a question of how we focus it. This brings to the second point, is that there's a lot of malaria in those places. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of complexity. We're, we can't go this alone. I'm really excited by the partnerships that the, that have been built up in the malaria space over the past um, decade and a half, um, and the Gates Foundation is really likely to have been a key part of these partnerships. We work in everything that we do through partners, and uh, in malaria, it has been the case up to this point now, where all of our impact and all the impact that others have happens in the context of partnerships partnership with countries, uh, partnership with other donors, partnership with implementers, and, and so on. 
we can do even more within that. There is an opportunity to actually increase the level of coordination, cooperation, kind of tactical on-the-ground collaboration between the key partners, where when uh, President Malaria Initiative, when Global Fund, uh, WHO, World Health Organization, World Back Malaria, or RBM Partnership to End Malaria, um, and uh, us can work together, all geared around supporting a national malaria control program, um, we can do certain things now where it's not just certain uh, groups are working in some states, some groups are working in other states, but we are actually saying, okay, what are the advantages that each one of us brings? What are the comparative advantages that each one of us has? And we can actually intentionally scale up our efforts in the countries where a scale-up is needed. But it's not just all of us scaling up what we do. We selectively focus on the things where we bring a comparative advantage. So there's a lot of really exciting conversations happening right now with President's Malaria Initiative, with WHO, with uh, Global Fund, in terms of identifying what each of us can actually do best and how can we actually coordinate, communicate, and actually collaborate more effectively um, while making sure to keep national malaria control programs at the center of these efforts that we do. The data is a big part of it. The how do we think about the pathway to eradication and what does that mean for where we focus our energies, that drives some really notable shifts that I think are going to help uh, save a lot of lives. But then it also comes down to the partnerships. If we look beyond that, there's a few other things. One of the big parts of the strategy update was, well, what have we learned over the past five to ten years? And there have been some really great studies that have been done, really great uh, operations research in terms of looking at how do we use different tools, how do we use, uh, how do we use the bed net, how do we use different forms of distributing drugs, mass screen and treat, uh, giving out drugs to everyone in affected communities, increasing access to care through community health workers, doing certain proactive community case management. And we've learned a lot about what are the things that are most effective, that achieve different levels of impact in different settings, and uh, what's needed to actually fully interrupt transmission. And we see that there's a couple pieces, that if you want to actually locally eliminate malaria, so interrupt transmission, get down to zero malaria in a community, in a district, in a province, in a country, uh, or even in a, in a region, um, there's a couple things that need to happen. The first one is you need to have uh, you, you need to have transmission reduced to a sufficiently low level. The second one is you need to have access to care and good case management high enough. And how high that is depends on certain local factors. And then you also need to reduce the rate of importation of new cases. If you can do those three things, you can actually uh, then there are other things you can do on top of that. A variety of things. There is reactive case detection whether it's uh, mass screen and treat, focal MDA, uh, focal mass drug administration in uh, affected, house affected households. Um, you have many things you can layer on top of that, but if you don't have good uh, case management, if you don't have sufficient reduction transmission, or if you have a high rate of importation of new cases, you're not going to be able to actually interrupt uh, malaria transmission. We look at that in terms of what's needed to achieve elimination, and we look and say, well, what are the tools that can actually reduce deaths most aggressively? Well, reducing transmission is a key thing there. The second one that needs to be done is good access to care. If you actually have good and timely access to the right malaria drugs, effective malaria drugs, uh, you actually see fewer you actually see fewer severe cases. You see more uncomplicated cases because of malaria because you detect them quickly. But you see fewer severe cases and far fewer deaths. This, we should always remember that malaria is a preventable disease and a treatable disease. 
And getting the right access to prevention and getting the right access to treatment uh, can actually deal with the burden in a very aggressive way. So the capabilities that we need to actually ultimately succeed against malaria overall are also our tools to actually drive down burden the most in the near term. And if we actually drive down burden where the prevalence and the burden is the highest right now, that'll also reduce the uh, rate of uh, importation of new malaria cases to other places that can then actually push even further and interrupt transmission entirely. So when we start looking at what are the data telling us, what, are the, what is the evidence telling us from the past couple of years, and what lessons should we be taking, we see a real opportunity that the things that we would need to build for the long term uh, in terms of uh, interrupting malaria transmission overall and actually getting to a world free of malaria are also the things that will help drive down burden fastest in the, in the meantime. Uh, we can actually understand, understand the local epidemiology, understand how mosquitoes are driving transmission, which mosquitoes are driving transmission, and where are they feeding. And then use an appropriate mix of tools to actually reduce tr uh, transmission to a level that's needed, which will be more in some areas than other. Um, and then also making sure that everyone has rapid, and rapid, timely, and effective access to an appropriate malaria drug. Um, if we do those two things, burden goes down really quickly, and we have also laid the groundwork for uh, eventual pushes to actually get rid of malaria altogether. So those are some of the key elements of the new strategy. I think this is something where this is, these are things that a lot of people have been saying for a long time. They're easy to say. They're hard to implement. And we're really excited about taking the next steps, uh, working together with partners at PMI, at Global Fund, World Health Organization, and especially the National Malaria Control Programs uh, around the world to actually implement this to take the next steps along those paths. No, thanks very much. A very clear articulation uh, of the strategy and I think a very compelling way forward. You know, you highlighted the importance of partnership and clearly you know, the progress to date has really been based on, on, a, on a broad partnership and, and the future progress will rely on that vibrant partnership. There's no doubt that you know, you've highlighted a couple times one key partner is the President's Malaria Initiative and the United States remains the single largest international funder of global malaria efforts. And you know, we have strong and committed leadership at PMI with Ken Staley at the helm and funding levels have remained strong. And it's sort of a good news story in the midst of, uh, of, of, of a lot of bad news out there. Um, and, you know, I just wondered if you might reflect a little bit on that role of, of the United States leadership um, in the continued fight uh, against malaria. The United States is the, is the largest donor um, in the fight against malaria. And if you look at President's Malaria Initiative now working in 27 countries, um, they're one of the they, they have been uh, the, a key, not only a key donor, a key implementer uh, with their partners in terms of actually raising the coverage uh, improving the data, rolling out new tools, and actually partnering with national malaria control programs to drive down burden and save a lot of lives. I think if we can see that the tools that are being rolled out through um, donations from the United States and through the activities of the President's Malaria Initiative have saved a lot of lives, have driven down a lot of uh, burden, have reduced the number of infections. And one thing is the burden of malaria goes beyond just the direct deaths of malaria. When you drive down malaria in a place, it's remarkable that deaths due to a variety of other causes, such as pneumonia, go down as well. Malaria is highly immunosuppressive. A, a child who has just fought off a uh, really difficult case of malaria is more likely to die from other causes. And 
so driving down malaria not only gets rid of the, those remaining malaria deaths, it also reduces the broader set of deaths. There's long there, there's negative effects from growing up with chronic anemia. And if you're and if you're a young child in in, in a setting and getting malaria frequently, uh, you're going to have fewer red blood cells and you'll have a higher rate of anemia. And so, I, I the the work of the the funding provided by the United States and the implementation and operations provided by President's Malaria Initiative have saved a lot of lives, are continuing to save a lot of lives. And beyond just both saving lives due to malaria, they're saving lives due to other diseases too, and also helping children grow up in a healthier way. That has really strong generational effects that will make the world a much better place over the years to come. Um, we can build on this, and there's even more that we can all do together. And it's been uh, exciting to uh, discuss what are the ways in which we can share data with each other. What are the ways in which we can collect better data and, and uh, provide that to national air control programs to improve implementations? What are the ways in which we can target the distribution interventions to actually be tailored to the local epidemiological situation and uh, to where the right tools go to the right places at the right time? Um, this is something that a huge impact has been made. Uh, the partnerships are important and there's even more impact that can be had over the coming years. Um, but it, it, is, it is notable how many lives have been saved uh, through the donations from the United States and through the activity of PMI. And this uh, will need to be a foundational element of the fight against malaria uh, moving forward, and I think will be a key part of why we think that uh, this fight can, can actually get all the way to uh, ultimate success and achieving a world free of malaria. Um, that that will, with tremendous benefits to the world overall and to uh, the people in each country that's currently affected by malaria. I think that's a perfect pivot to the last question I had for you, and we touched on it earlier in, in, in our conversation, and that's around how malaria really is a key element of primary health care, and the success in controlling malaria is, is key to, to that agenda to universal health coverage and to this ultimate success in the health-related sustainable development goals. And I'm interested to hear your thinking about how, as there's an increased global focus on these integrated efforts of making sure that people have access to services, not just for malaria, but as you say, you know, for pneumonia, for diarrheal disease, for, for all sorts of, of, of conditions, how you see the malaria fight evolving in the context of those greater and more integrated global efforts? This is something that I'm incredibly excited about um, because this is the next kind of ring of partnerships beyond that. We talk about partnerships within malaria. I think what's going to make the biggest difference in the years to come are going to be the partnerships beyond malaria. Um, and uh, one of the key things in that is this is going to be a multi-sectoral fight. This is going to be a multi-sectoral uh, success. And um, uh, one of the key sectors for this is primary health care more broadly. We talked about the importance of when a child is sick with malaria, detecting it quickly and getting treated quickly. We can't build out a malaria system uh, across the world that in every community is there just to give malaria, or we could, but it would be prohibitively expensive and just a really and not a most effective use of resources. This is something where if you're going to have a community health worker in a community, or you're going to actually improve the the rate at which the low, at, at which a uh, the clinic in the community has the right medications, you don't want to solve the supply chain issue 
and making sure that that clinic has stocks of the appropriate um, uh, has stocks of the appropriate medicine just for malaria. If you're going to actually improve the supply chain, do it for the other diseases as well, and actually make sure that when uh, the, that clinic runs out of something, they get it the, it quickly, or even better, when they're about to run out of something, send to make sure that they actually get their stocks replenished uh, beforehand. These are just basic systems that strengthen primary health care um, that uh, go beyond malaria. When supply chains are improved, making sure that um, uh, primary health care facilities have the right uh, supplies, uh, that they generate uh, data that actually help them understand the nature of what is uh, making people sick and killing people in their area. Those are th- those, and and use those da- using those data to actually. Uh, respond more effectively uh, in that local setting. Those are the disciplines that are absolutely essential for success against malaria, but they also apply to many other diseases too. Um, the last one is increasing access, uh, and we can see that when, when either new uh, primary health care facilities are uh, set up in uh, communities that previously didn't have access to care, or community health workers uh, or uh, health extension workers get into those communities. Uh, treatment-seeking behavior goes up, um, and uh, uh, burden goes down at the same time. If done right, you also get better data to actually respond and optimize the use of primary health care resources even better. Um, so these are things that we want to uh, collectively, not just as uh, the Gates Foundation, not just as the malaria community, but uh, within the global health community overall, to together invest in, to actually improving access to care, improve uh, supply chain, improve the uh, uh, making sure that primary health care facilities have uh, have a um, making sure primary health care facilities have the in stock the medicines that people and uh, other supplies that people need. The last piece is also uh, the private sector. And uh, in a lot of countries, uh, people actually seek, seek treatment first and foremost in a private health care facility. In some cases, over 60% of malaria cases go first to a private provider. Um, in some places, the, this private uh, sector um, has unregulated drugs, uh, poor quality. Um, someone may not be getting a malaria drug. That is actually what they need most. And so there are mechanisms that we can do to ensure that across all sex, all health sectors, that uh, drugs are high quality and that uh, if someone goes to seek treatment for uh, malaria or the treatment for, uh, that they will get the appropriate drug if they have malaria. The last piece is that um, people don't seek treatment for malaria, actually. They seek treatment because they're feeling sick and they have a fever. And there are many different diseases that could actually be responsive to that. In certain places at certain times of the year, it's more likely than not to be malaria. But it could also be it could be pneumonia. It could be some other pathogen. It could be typhoid. And so getting to a... Uh, access to primary health care and actually understanding what is actually making them sick and getting the appropriate treatment for the thing that's actually making them sick is a key thing that needs to happen. That's not something that malaria can do on its own. This is something that's going to need the other parts of the global health community, the different sectors. But if we work together and actually improve primary health care overall, it's going to actually benefit all of us um, and all different sectors of the, of the fight uh, to reduce deaths, improve health, and uh, save a lot of lives. Well, Philip, thank you so much for your time today and for your thoughtful leadership. We're very fortunate uh, as a global community to have you at the helm of, of malaria at the Gates Foundation.
thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed. We invite you to subscribe so that you never miss our latest episode. If you want to find out more about upcoming events in our work, please visit us at the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.